I'm Sam. And I'm Jackson. And this is your press release. We have Lon Searle with us today, and I'm just going to go ahead and read his bio real quick. So, Lon has a deep track record of creating value for investors through system improvements, tech, and connections in the various industries he has experience in. Cosmetic manufacturing is one of those hot industries, and he is often called by called on by potential investors to discuss opportunities. He has also been the CFO of several franchises, franchises including PMI, Property Management Inc., that is rolling up the market of 275,000 property managers with systems and processes that accelerate growth in both long-term and short-term rentals. As former CFO of Yesco, he started another franchise that introduced a technique or a unique model of service, only sign repair and connected franchisees with a large accounts that included McDonald's, 7-Eleven, and dozens of large restaurants and convenience store franchises. He also worked on mergers and acquisitions in his various roles that resulted in transactions as large as $90 million. Quite the career. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no problem. It sounds better than I realized when you read it like that. <laughs> you wrote that, didn't you? Yeah, I think so. You did? Okay. I, I, write the, I don't remember that. I really don't. It must have been like, what, a month ago? Yeah, well, you sent it, and you sent it on some sort of it wasn't a cover letter and it wasn't a resume yeah. but it was like some sort of dynamic mix of the two yeah it wasn't like uh i sat down and wrote my life story or a bio mm -hmm. for this podcast i think i just copied and pasted because okay. i was in a hurry i'm gotcha. always busy you guys yeah. i i believe it i would From... probably add if i were to write it again for you i'd probably add i grew up in vernal utah and um wonderful little small town environment mm -hmm. i listened to one of your podcasts and okay. i can't remember the name of the guy but he said he, he grew up a, around a lot of wealthy people is the guy with the prep meal prep company meal okay prep so company. trey valdez yeah trey yeah trey mm -hmm. my my experience was a little different i grew up a, around a lot of wealth a lot of successful business people that were very different than i think the wealthy people he grew up around it was very much like horse ranchers or you know dirt construction mm -hmm. um, owners that live in their trailer until they can pay cash for their you know house with a swimming pool in the back you know mm -hmm. just very very humble very you know conservative when it comes to like showing their wealth yeah. so that that's kind of my background and i emulated a lot of the hard work I learned growing up on the ranch and growing up on the farm and just kind of took that into my career. So it's been pretty successful, I think. Okay. So what were some of the notable takeaways that you learned during that time frame, or how, how did it affect you growing up around those people that were extremely wealthy, but also humble about it? I think I took away just not being flashy with your wealth. You know, I, drove up today in a car that has 250,000 miles on it and I got a great deal on it 10 years ago you know and mm. I just can't give it up because it's still running you know and um, I don't try to I try to manage down more than I manage up I'm one of those managers that probably doesn't appear as as um awesome to the my supervisor as I appear to my employees I think I think even the employees I've had to fire in the past would say I've 
one of the better supervisor experiences, you know. And um, I think I'm just very open and honest with them and humble about how we work together. So you said managing down. I've never heard that term before. Can you define that a little bit more for us? Well, I think a lot of successful people manage up really, really well. Like they communicate really well, really often with their, their supervisors and their, the leadership of the company. They're always prepping for the next PowerPoint or the next presentation. I just have a hard time focusing all my time on that. I don't think it's as worthwhile as leading your team and interacting with your team and um, really prepping the time you have with them or interacting with them and, and planning out things with them. So that's where I focus a lot of my time. And it's it's been a detriment, actually, to my career many times. Um, what you're not reading in that bio is I've been fired as a CFO a couple of times yeah. and uh, had to start over kind of way like 10 years back. And I've learned that to put myself in situations where I shine in situations like that where maybe I own the company and so everyone's, you know, the one, the ones that I'm managing down for and like leading and um, trying to put myself in situations where I own a piece of the company instead of just, you know, relying on the leadership above me to recognize my, my strengths because I think people who I work with at a peer level or lower just recognize my strengths a lot more than the one the ones above me. I don't I don't know. I think I'm pretty unique that way because a lot of people have been successful in their career really really focused on you know facing up the chain of command, you know. Yeah. Was that like an active decision you made when you started your career or it just kind of slowly unfolded that way as you realized you, you appreciated your peers and, and those under you more than reporting to a supervisor? No, I would say it's a weakness that I've just mitigated by finding a path that, you know, makes it a strength. It's really a weakness for most people, wouldn't you say? I would think a lot of people would, would view it that way. Yeah. I don't necessarily know that it is. Um, I think a good leader is definitely able to come in and and pull that team up and focus on them like that. But but as you said, if you have a supervisor you report to, it, I, I see how it could be a detriment to the career as well. Yeah, definitely detriment to the career. But um, I've overcome those, and I think I have a pretty good you know track record. So mm-hmm. it's working out. Good. Can you give us some examples of, you don't necessarily have to tell us when you were fired, but maybe walk us through some of the stories of why exactly that happened, but then how did you overcome it to get back to the level of success that you are now? Oh, these are interesting stories. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) So I worked at uh, Young Electric Sign Company. Have you ever heard of that? Is that the Yesco? Yep, Yesco. Mm -hmm. You see them on a lot of billboards in Utah up and down the... I-15. I, I noticed as a fun fact, if I may, that they're, they were founded in 1920 and they're over 100 years old. Over 100 so, years old. That's yeah, right. Kind of crazy. That is. And I worked for them for 18 years and I was the controller and then I was a, a divisional controller in Vegas and then I moved back as a CFO for um, the last six years I was there. And that was from 2000 and 
2010 to about 2016. Remember that time in the in the economy? Pretty tough. It's a it wasn't great. it's a cyclical company, heavily construction related. You'd buy a sign when you start a new business, and so a lot of a lot of great experiences trying to like collect the money from casinos and construction companies and things like that and making payroll th through some really tough times. So um, basically, long story short, the banks just came in and started like scrutinizing every little thing. My previous um, boss left with about $73 million in debt and we paid it down to about $50 million in a time when we were losing like two to I don't know, two to ten million a year. So that that was, I think, amazing. A lot harder than building up the seventy-three million of debt. You know, paying <laughs> right. it down. Right. <laughs> I, I would think so. <laughs> you would think so. So you think you'd think the banks would just love me, right, to death in that scenario because we're like we're paying it down, we're getting it, you know, we're getting it handled. But that, you know, communicating up is one of my weaknesses and really you know staying on top of the communications with the bank wasn't my strength and i was put in a position where i was told you know don't don't tell him that or this or that because it's you know it's that's that's too pessimistic Lon. you're being like trying to forecast something bad and the banks i felt wanted that information they wanted to know the bad news as early as i did and I've learned that no matter what anyone tells you as a CFO, you got to like get ahead of the mm -hmm. bad information with banks and owners and investors. You have to like, as soon as you know it, just tell it to them right then, as fast as you can. And so I was, uh, I was put in a kind of a pickle as a young, younger CFO. I was like forty-ish, mm -hmm. low forties, and brand new to the to the role. I think this really, like, very seasoned banker viewed me as not up to it and he set his sights on finding ways to kind of press the the owners to get rid of me and there was a one particular thing there and I did a lot of things wrong and mm -hmm. looking back you know I could have done so many things um, better especially just really knowing the bank agreement that, that was like two inches thick you know mm -hmm. front to back every word and just you know being letter of the law to it so i missed a few things one of which was sending the weekly report in on time and the report was due at 9 p.m every um tuesday let's say but i learned too late that that was 9 p.m eastern time instead of 9 p.m 9 p.m mountain time so the bank built this long list of violations that were technical-like violations and took it, to my, took it to my manager. And I felt like, you know, if, if we'd had a better relationship, like that facing up a little more, he would have brought that to me before he decided basically under the pressure of the bank to fire me and really, you know, learned what was going on. But he made the, he made the decision like, you're gone. He said, you have emptied the bucket with these banks and I was out of there. And it was devastating, worse than any other like experience really in my life. And I've been through some hairy ones that you mm -hmm. might come up in this conversation. But 
I took that worse than anything. But I grew from it. I landed on my feet. I was actually interviewing with a PE firm at the time. Um, I was, here, backing up, rewind a little bit, you guys. You'll, you'll find this interesting. I had been mountain biking about, about eight weeks before this happened, and I broke my neck. <laughs> so I had a halo. You know what a halo is? It's yeah. like sp- spikes into your skull and with a circle around it attached to your a vest over your chest. You've seen them before. Uh-huh. I haven't seen one, you haven't but seen you're one? giving me a really good picture of one. <laughs> yeah, you cannot move. You cannot move your neck. And so... This is, this is all happening. Um, I'm going through recovery and all that. And they, they let me go in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's tough to be interviewing for your job as another CFO with, with this like halo in your, in your head. Can you imagine that? For, this, for a P firm, P firms are selective. So that's like one of my that's my one of my down, down moments. But I would say one of my like greatest accomplishments is getting a job with a very discriminating, picky private equity firm with spikes in my head. <laughs> <laughs> the the HR manager was that was like looking at me that day. There there he was thinking. What are who? Are, why are they interviewing? He told me this later because we became really good friends. He said he thought, "Why are they interviewing that guy? Is he like mentally ill or something?" <laughs> <laughs> and, but I nailed it. I nailed the interview, and they really liked my experience. I think my former supervisor was kind of pressed into letting me go by the banks. He gave mm-hmm. me, a, I think, a glowing recommendation. And I got the job, and it was a great job. I made one of my best friends in my life, who were in the business together as as well right now. And he was the CEO and the former CFO at the at the company. It was called. And we we took that. When I sat down with them, and I said, um, "What does success look like for for the PE firm?" And they said, well, in the next five years, if you can get this from like $6 million in EBITDA to about $15 million in EBITDA, that would be like a huge home run for us. And if you know how PE firms work, it's not just about like the growth in EBITDA. They're paying down debt. They've like leveraged up. They're, they're going to make another acquisition. They're going to pay the debt down along the way. So it's not just the value created by the, the delta in that and those earnings, it's all so what debt they pay back and how much revenue they grew and things like that. So they just had that target in their minds and they're just like, that's a home run. So we hit um, we hit 18 million in EBITDA in like three years. Mm-hmm. So you'd think it'd be like, wow. Kind of like I said with the mm-hmm. paying down the debt thing, this guy is a superstar. But what happened along the way is we hired a um, COO from Procter and Gamble, and they and we all thought was oh my gosh this guy is impressive, and he just kind of squeezed in there between the board and my boss and got my boss my friend fired first, and then me fired next and just kind of took over and filled the 
the leadership with uh, people that he knew from mm-hmm. Procter and Gamble, and who wouldn't want a bunch of leaders from Procter and Gamble leading your your company? So after basically hitting a solid home run after three years, mm-hmm. they spent the next five years going backwards and coming back to basically where we left it. And then they found out that the guy that had gotten me fired and my one of my best friends, total crook, embezzling money, blackmailing the accountant into hiding things, like sleeping with his direct reports, complete scumbag. I knew it all along, but I still have to say one of the most amazing leaders, especially like managing up, like mm-hmm. kind of like communicating up I've ever seen, actually doing ama- amazing things. I, I still to this day use a lot of things I learned from him, but um, I think kind of managing up hides a lot of weaknesses that people don't recognize mm-hmm. in the, in um, their direct reports if they're really good at just covering it up, you know? So that's like my second experience of getting, getting okay. fired. And it led me to PMI, which is Property Management Incorporated. And I had a connection there. My brother-in-law is one of the main owners. Him and his Steve Hart and Christopher Layton started it. Very, very successful. It's been a blessing that I got fired from those first two jobs because this job is like the dream CFO job. It's amazing. And along the way, I picked up, um, I do a little bookkeeping service on the side. I have my own little um, ownership in a partnership with my friend. So we've started another company called Artisan Labs, which is just a small part of my um, week. Most of my week is a PMI, like really more than a week. It's like 50 plus hours, 60 hours a week at PMI. Mm -hmm. And um, other little ventures that we've picked up and I've got some ownership in Property Management Inc., which I really never had in any of the other CFO jobs, which is really um, satisfying to me and makes me even want want it more, you know, the success of the company. And um, I think that's that's critical to have that sense of ownership. I've always had a sense of ownership, like an employee that feels like they own the company, but this is... Um, this is different to actually have ownership. You start running the numbers and figuring things out, and you you take a very um, you take an owner's perspective on things, which is what the owners wanted when they brought me on. So, I feel like that's something that was missing, especially from Yesco, because the family didn't even the family that owned it, I think, didn't even act like owners in a lot of ways because they were just stewards of a trust that was they planned to perpetuate forever and it wasn't really it it, they didn't run it like with a profit motive that turned into that translates to security a lot of owners think oh you know i'm gonna run it with the employees in mind first and that will create a great environment and they'll be loyal and they'll do their best if i put them before profit or customers or anything. But you can take that to extremes. And I saw it 
when we, you know, didn't focus enough on profitability and then it came to a downturn in the economy and we had to let about 500 out of 2,000 employees go in, in like a few months. And it was horrible. It was just the worst case scenario for the family, who I still love to this day, even with that experience. I just think they're awesome because they did love their employees more than, than even them, their, themselves. You put them, they put them before everything. Who, what is wrong with that? Nothing is wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But there has to be a balance or you can end up harming the people that you're trying to put first, you know. So many employees and, and people find that hard mm-hmm. to, to do. What would you say that balance is between profits versus focusing on the employees? Or maybe well, that's not that's, a zero-sum game between the, right, the two, but yeah. what? That's the right pro- priority. And we just had a leadership meeting at PMI, and it was all about people and customers. And they got to me, in fact, and I said, and I only had a short part of the agenda that day, because I have my own numbers meeting where we talk about numbers like all day long. Actually, it's like almost a day and a half with all the managers kind of go through the numbers once a month. I just said, you know, I'm going to skip it today. This is a great discussion about people. And we, we, we find that if you try to mix the two too much, like in the same meeting, it's just people get mixed messages. Like, really? Do you care about me or do you care about EBITDA? And so we just had a day about people and customers and it was amazing, and I loved it. And those that's the right priority. People, customers, without that, all your problems are solved if you don't have any customers, right? You, you have to have people making customers happy or nothing else matters. So that's, that's the right priority. But um, you, have to have, you have to have managers. You have to have leaders that are motivated to keep the lifeblood of the company flowing and profitability above a certain target. And even, I think, no matter what company it is, if they aren't building on additional profit every year, if they're saying, oh, we're going to invest in this or invest in that or invest in people this year and let profit take a back seat and kind of go backwards, it's so hard to... It's, it's so hard to reverse that mixed message and, and get back on track. You just need to really focus on build, build, build every year. And in the, in the end, your employees will love you for it because they want to be part of a winning team. They don't want to be part of a losing team. They want that, that feeling of, hey, we're losing, to undermine, all the, undermine everything else that's going on in the company. Mm-hmm. And so one way to create that feeling of a winning team, <clears throat> or at least in your situation, was to have access to ownership within the company. It seemed like that really changed your perspective about your job, at least for PMI. Would yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, I think it made, it made a big difference. Ownership is, um, is key. You can get it without giving people ownership, but it's harder, right? It's... Um, it's spread out a lot at PMI. There's a, all levels can qualify for it after several years. And it, if you looked at the org chart of the company, you'd be surprised the people who have it and people who don't, just based on tenure and how, how long they've been there. Um, the 
people to have stock options or ownership. And the other thing, it, um, I had a little bit of ownership in the form of stock options. This is the second job? Second job. But then when they let me go, they, they have this condition that most B firms have that if you leave, you're done. Like we buy you out at a certain price, which was nothing near what it was worth. It was like one twentieth of what it was actually worth. So it was kind of like the, you know, the small print on your contract that I'll always read now. And um, that is different in this culture I'm in right now. People that are led into that circle get it for life. They can take it with them to other jobs. One of the people that we that earned it and paid for it and exercised their options went on to work with one of our vendors is one of and and still remains a great partner for us at a software company. And we've actually invested in that software company. And it's just, it's creating this network of, you know, a virtuous cycle. And uh, I think it's, it's the right approach. And it's very, 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 I don't think anyone appreciates it more than me. And I think the others don't appreciate it enough. Because, you know, they could just come in one day, like I experienced, you're gone for ridiculous reasons. And boom, you know, you lost all of that future um, appreciation that you were working for for years and years and years, and uh, I think it's it's very very it's very generous and, and it's it's made me you know that much more committed to them. Okay, yeah. How how has it changed your approach of of the effort you're putting in towards your job or the way you you approach your job or bring your team with you what has that ownership done for just I think it gives you it gives you a sense of urgency it gives you a sense of um, you know a perspective that you don't have if you're not an owner Mm -hmm. Um, makes you want to do it again with other companies you know and be an owner again that can be a distraction actually if you think about it right Mm -hmm. and uh, so you want to you really want to have like the people who report to you to also have that. It's like a it's like a message you want to share with them. You want them to have it, and you want it to permeate the whole operation. I think it's at the same time it's been generous, but it's also been hard to exercise. It's kind of expensive. I, I think of ways that I can get my peers to like exercise so they're actually owners and not just maybe in the future owners they maybe we'd have the same um, perspective on some of these problems you know so um, but it's everything you would expect right your mm-hmm. perspective changes your sense of urgency or um, what how can we solve these problems let's get this solved right away so we can hit our numbers this year or you think about the people you're hiring differently you think about them 20 years from now, you know, like I may still have a little piece of this company. And if PMI gets 20% of the market, it'll be worth like $80 billion. You start running that math and you're like, even if I cash out someday and I keep like 0.25% 
of something worth that much? That's like more than a hundred million bucks. And you start thinking, oh, even after I'm dead, I better pick pick the person that will fit my, that could be, you know, in his mm-hmm. seat or her seat or my seat 20 years from now. So I don't think you get that perspective in most employee mm-hmm. um, owner relationships until you're actually an owner. Um, so it's like building for your kid's future, not just your mm-hmm. own. Um, it's that kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. So right now we're talking about ownership in the form of stock options, right? Yeah. So can we just define what a stock option is yeah. in case people don't know? And you're a CFO, so I feel like you're the perfect guy to do that. And then oh, yeah. what does compensation look like in the form of a stock option? So, okay, some little known things. First, if you're if invest in stock or in, in your 401k plan, you're probably, you're probably part owner of a piece of a company like Microsoft. So Microsoft can choose to, um, you can go out and buy an option to buy a share, 100 shares of Microsoft in a week, right? Earnings are coming up. Oh, I think it's going to jump, you know, 20 points. I'm going to buy a stock option for next Friday to, you know, has a strike price of 350 and maybe Microsoft is at like 345 and you think it's gonna jump to 400. And you, you could make um, multiples of the price if it, if it does so. Let's say the stock option to buy 100 shares costs um, $1,000. If the stock jumps up 50 points times 100, that's $5,000 minus the thousand you put in. That's, you just made like $4,000. Now don't go day trading and quit your job. But that's, <laughs> I, I've done I've done a little bit of it with, with options. I, but I know, you look job. like the type. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what that's supposed to mean, but I'm going to take this yeah. compliment. <laughs> well, companies can do that with their stock too. They can say in five years, we're going to give you the stock option. Most of the time they give it to you. They don't make you buy it or anything, but they make you vest. They make you earn it by sticking around for five years and maybe... 20% vests every year for five years. So you get 100% if you stick around. And they choose a strike price that's usually above what they think the company is because they don't want to, you know, give you give away a percentage of the company. Right now, you just started there maybe, or maybe you started two years ago and you haven't earned the right. So they say, okay, the company's worth a million today, but it could be worth 100 million in five years if we get everyone on the same page. So they, they award the management team uh, stock options that are valued at like 20 million, let's say. So it's worthless today mm-hmm. because you're not worth 20 million. You couldn't sell it to anyone. But um, if you work hard and make the company worth more than that, then the stock options are worth something. And then it gets to that point and they have a little... They have mechanisms for you to exercise. A lot of people are just in this this treadmill, this of PE firms, for example, use stock options when they buy a company and they they kind of set a five year target. No one really exercises. They just try to sell the company in that five year time frame and then everything accelerates to the option price. And if it was at twenty and they sold for thirty, then your options, whatever percentage your options are worth you know, you get that $10 million valuation, the difference between 20 and 30. 
times your percentage, basically. So does that make sense? Yeah. So mm-hmm. what you just said about the PE firms, they're almost doing with the companies what day traders are doing in a every every day, just on a much larger scale. Yeah. And they use okay. they use debt. They go in and they they have relationships with banks. So they might buy the company that's worth a few million down here and they're not they're not even spending a lot of the money. They'll borrow five million to buy that guy dice company for five million and incentivize everyone to make it worth 20 or more but they didn't even put up all the money for even the five million they went and borrowed it and then they get the company's management to pay their fees and the interest on the debt that they borrowed and they they come around and have a board meeting and say oh that'll be a hundred grand you know for my day's work and they you know they take the take the management's profit and it goes back to the PE firm. Meanwhile, they're like encouraging them, like you gotta hit 20 million, you gotta get 20 million. And um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty rare to have a company like the one I work with that has more of a long-term perspective when they give out stock options, like mm-hmm. where are we gonna be in 20 years or where are we going to be in 10 and extend and extend the stock options because they usually have a life that expires in like five years and very few companies will extend that life to a kind of a long-term time track and try to help employees exercise and become owners typically stock options are like this you know silicon valley type mm-hmm. track really smart people pay them hundreds of thousands they get these million you know stock options that are worth millions of facebook's price you know quadruples in the next five years and it happens and they're all rich and everything those are the stock options you probably hear the most about but as a quantity of stock options are i think there are a lot more well that's not true there's so many big like fortune 500 companies that use stock options but there there are still quite a few pe firms out there using stock options as kind of the an enticement to get that company worth a lot in a short amount of time that's brilliant like i i really just enjoyed that part that was really cool to me. yeah so. i've <laughs> i've never heard it put that way before and it sounds like it totally changed your perspective on oh, yeah. okay long term i have to do what it takes yeah. to get this company to be 10x what it is or just off the ground or blow it to the moon or whatever the goal is right and it made me for this particular company i work at i think it gave me a perspective on how ownership can be longer term than that you know, that five-year time mm-hmm. frame that was so key to the PE firm I worked mm-hmm. for. Yeah. I mean, I never really commented on, right? Like, mm-hmm. like they said, you hit 15 million EBITDA in five years, that's a home run, and we hit it in less than, like, three. And yet, so they saw, you can, in their mind, like, oh, these, these country bumpkins that did that. <laughs> <laughs> there is... If we get these Procter and Gamble leaders in here, we'll get, we're going to take this to the moon. And you know they're thinking they basically are have an option with the bank. They borrowed the money, they put it down on this company. And if they can like light this rocket to the moon, you know they're going to be rich. Like mm-hmm. their grandchildren are going to be like the Rockefellers. So they bring in the P and G people and just boom backwards. Mm. 
And so that was kind of the problem that you didn't network upwards to create those relationships to continue the cycle of success instead of they, they brought those other people in. They kind of pushed you out. Yeah. And so that was the main problem there. Yeah, that, that's what's happened. Yeah. Um, the main problem um, was, I don't, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to say from my perspective. It's probably what, quite a few problems. but Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like the, just, it's, it's polit- corporate America can be political, right? There's, mm-hmm. As you can guess, it's, it's probably an aspect of that. You, there's always improvements you can make people come across like wow i did this at procter and gamble man we we're gonna take this thing to the moon and you just you find a space for him and um i would i would do i would make those mistakes if i were an owner and i was you know trying to double down and make a billion dollars in five or ten years you know something like that wouldn't we all like think oh there has to be there has to be an explanation for why this was so easy. Like, it was going to be a home run if they did it in five years. What? How did they do it in three? Let's really, let's put some gas in this tank and see where it goes, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, amazing, like, comes across like amazing leader and was. There's no argument. It was just a thief and a scumbag too, you know? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, do you, what do you think caused that downturn? Was it because he was a thief and it was embezzling? Or do you think it had something to do with... Oh, I think... I Well, that, let's talk about going backwards or being flat. Uh-huh. I think it's because almost any company... I was listening to a podcast about um, Pixar. And one of the managers of Pixar was saying, like, one of the greatest benefits of AI when when in doing CGI and creating animations isn't the technology itself. It's it's the opportunity to take a project that took five hundred people and getting it below one hundred people. You know? Mm-hmm. When you go past a hundred people and you're just growing like that, like trying to really ramp up, it's so hard to connect with everyone and get everyone excited and keep everyone motivated and on the same page and not working against each other. You know, it's just so hard. And that's what the, all those P firms are trying to do is take a, um, you know, a little manufacturing firm in Idaho Falls, that's where it was, and ramp it up to, you know, something huge, you know, mm-hmm. like huge that can service Costco and Walmart and, and all those brands and that's what he was he was doing and in a lot of ways successful but he had to go backwards like three or four years to do it and he abandoned all the small customers which we're loving because we're picking them up in our little company that we started later mm-hmm. and um, focused on the big customers and it was a it was a completely different shift so you not only do you have this people problem I mentioned you have mm-hmm. this customer base that you're switching from one to the other. I don't know anyone who could do that in such a short time and be like uber successful at it. No. No. So, so it sounds like they didn't just come in and 
and build upon the strategy in place, it's it, they threw it out the window and said, threw it we're out. taking the company a whole different direction. Ah, do I have a great idea for you? This is uh-huh. going, we're going to focus on a massive market instead of this tiny, you know, puny little market, uh-huh. which we were making like 45, 50% margin on, by the way. And the, there's no way Walmart's paying you 50% margin on anything. So there's a transition there, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe we weren't making that much, but we are now. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you that. We're yeah. making more than that. <laughs> I've, I've noticed that that seems to be a common theme where businesses or even just people in general, they, they, do, they do one certain thing. They begin to get pretty good at it. It, be, it builds their success. And then once they think that they've made it, and they stop doing those things that made them successful. And it seems like that was the case with the company that you were working for. Yeah. They neglected those small companies, um, and they stopped – um, using those customers that had such high margins instead of focusing for just the big home run. Yeah. So Well, they, they were, uh, there was a mix of customers that were really, really small to about medium size. And that was our bread. That wasn't, it's not that the small customers were our bread and butter because the bigger customers were. So you, you analyze that equation and you think, I need to do less of that and more of that. And that, that's valid a lot of the times, right? You know, mm-hmm. the distractions just, you know, we're doing a little bit of that right now. We're getting rid of those brand new customers that don't really pay off. And so that is absolutely valid. But you said it just it, at some point it becomes a completely different business model and you're starting over. And I think that explains kind of the flat line and then the jump later. Um, I wasn't the CFO through all this. I'm just getting some of this secondhand. Mm-hmm. I was a CFO through the per- first part. And I know how to replicate it, you know, in another business we're building. And I think I know, you know, how to do it in, in, a, in a way that's profitable over time. Um, I've never worked at P&G, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think he was trying to recreate P&G, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it's a different mindset going from, uh, you know, 10,000 units of something, maybe 100,000 a day to four tons of shampoo and like you know millions of units Mm -hmm. and um so it's just a completely different you do what you know right Mm -hmm. so yeah so now you are the cfo at property management and you said earlier that it's your dream job so what makes this job so incredible the people are great i love the people i work with um having we, we talked about having that ownership mindset in not just me, but the group, um, which is a godsend for a CFO because half of your life you spend trying to manage the ownership's expectations and the employees' expectations, and they're, such, they're so far apart. So to have employees around you and peers that have more of an ownership mindset is, a, is awesome. Um, I think we're doing something really unique because there are only a couple of property management franchises. One is ours and one is real property management of size. There are a lot of little ones. Mm-hmm. We're the only ones with four revenue channels, which we call pillars, which are residential, short-term rental association and commercial. And so we have a great offering to franchisees who come on because they can get good at one thing, 
pick a champion and then do and diversify their portfolio of offerings to their customers. And um, it's just really unique. And franchising is great. I think it's a win-win for the, the franchisee. They get the leverage and the exposure and the brand recognition of a franchise. It's great for the, the company. You know, it's, uh, I talked to an association, um, PE-owned company recently, mm-hmm. and we were comparing financial models, and I got done sharing some data. They shared some data, and they basically said, so you are making about as much money as we are, and we have to put up all the capital and hire all, you know, the network's entire employees, and you guys just, you know, you you don't have to put any of it up. The, the franchisees invest in their companies, which is the great advantage of being a franchise, but it's also a great advantage to the franchisee because they own those things that are so valuable. Mm-hmm. They own most of the employees and the customers and the capital. So they get something, we get something, and... We don't have to take on as much risk, and they don't have to take on as much risk either. It's a real win-win. So it's just uh, it's great. It's a great idea that my brother-in-law had. And, and were you part of building that, or did you come in at a later time? I came in at a later time technically, but my brother-in-law and I consulted when we started a franchise at Yesco. Mm-hmm. He helped me do that, and we just talked through a lot of problems that we had there and worked them out. We started that franchise together at Yesco, and then I was just, you know, I'd I'd check in and see how he's doing at PMI. I would say he worked more at the startup of Yesco than I helped him on the PMI, but then I'd gotten so much experience when I became available after the Idaho job. He just snapped me up and... We worked together on PMI about, um, yeah, about about tw- twelve years into PMI's history, okay. I think. And and from when you joined, or about ten, yeah, so ten, tw- years ten to twelve years in, and you joined to to now. It's been six years. It's been six years. What has changed in that time then? And and what do you think your impact has been on that? Well, we weren't really. If we were profitable, it's very marginal. Mm-hmm. Back then, I think barely made money, um, and now we're really, really profitable, really growing, um, growing about twenty five percent a year, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. With um, margins that are very high, like software company type margins, you know, and the um, team has really evolved. Like we have a, a new COO that used to be very high-level executive at American Express. He's amazing. Um, return uh, mission president and didn't want to go back to American Express and thought this would be interesting. I really don't think he needs the money. He's like mm-hmm. kind of like motivated by the fun of managing people and leading people. And um, that's that's can ask for anything more than that. Fortune 500 like executive comes to your little team in Lehigh, Utah mm-hmm. and shows you 
you know, all the ropes. And he would say that the chief growth officer is one of the best facilitators of a meeting and leader that he's ever seen in his life, which is high praise from a guy who's lived in England and Australia and the U.S. and led enormous teams at American Express all over the world. And um, best, you know, relationship with my boss I've ever had. Um, we're kind of peers almost rather than boss, you know, employee relationship, which is, you know, not new because I had that with my really good friend that I, you know, a part owner in this cosmetic manufacturing firm with, but um, it's, it's, it's new because um, it's a really long term. It's been a good six years and we just keep, you know, keep developing that friendship and, mm -hmm. and um, love to work together and pretty open and honest and nothing to hide. Just a great executive team among those, the four of us, and that's fun. So you've watched this company <clears throat> pretty much take off in the last six years since you've been CFO, and you mentioned how the other executives are amazing, which is great, but you're still CFO, so obviously you had some impact in that success. So my question would be, what is your advice to somebody that wants to have a positive impact on a company? I would say... Um, Think outside the box. Don't be afraid to speak up to your supervisor in meetings. Um, I think of people that I know have great ideas. They shared them with me, and they're just—they're not—they're not taking a chance with the with the group. You know, when we get together, I would say companies need to give uh, opportunities to employees. Me and my controller—we tried recently to make a cross department group and we call it the pit crew and I'm, I'm still waiting it to kind of flourish I'm hoping that the executives step away and just let the department you know leadership at a, at a two or you know two or three levels down mingle and and come up with their own ideas and just kind of let it let it go that it'll turn into something amazing um, for those people that feel like they can't be heard or they don't get a chance to to really shine and um, that's the main purpose of it and as the CFO kind of leading the charge I, I wonder if they think oh this is just another way to cut costs you know they want us to cut the costs so they don't have to that's not it I can shut down your credit card I could do that you know? <laughs> <laughs> I want you to like speak up and tell you know tell us your story and what you're thinking and Try something and fail and try again and and um, you know do something different that we never thought of mm -hmm. and uh, there's there's a lot of that in our company but I think there could be more if if people at all levels would take a chance. How would you incentivize more in your company of this out of the box thinking and yeah. taking chances with new ideas? How how do you incentivize even more like? what are we doing now that we're not that we should be doing or, or <clears throat> advice to other companies both Just both yeah mm -hmm. both okay um, <laughs> uh, share you know one idea that came up in the meeting yesterday I think that is interesting is sharing really long term visions of what an org chart looks like huh. so the lowest level employees can think 
And I would couple that with really long-term thinking about where we could be. Like I said earlier, if we had 20% of the market, that would be like $80, $100 billion company. And that's achievable if you're going, growing. It doesn't even really matter how small you are. Given enough time, if you continue to grow at 25% a year, you could have the 20, you know, have 20% of almost any market eventually. It might take 30 or 40 years, but it'll happen. And so if you can get people thinking in those terms, at the lowest level, you know, the vision, you could be, you know, this department head or that person or in charge of that project. You know, if you just um, speak up, take on extra responsibilities. And um, so and our controller had this idea in the meeting yesterday. It's like, we need to not sh just share the org chart today. We need to share like this visionary org chart of five, 10, 20 years from now so that people can see a vision of where they could be if they start to speak up and share great ideas and think long, long term about where the company could be. And I thought that was a great idea. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you're not just trying to facilitate growth of the company, but facilitate the growth of individuals in the company well, that's who what, will then push it to, to limits you've not seen before. Yeah, that's what it's all about. You can't do it without a great team of people that are trying to grow the company, right? Yeah. You look like you had something when I jumped in there. Oh, um, I was just going to reiterate the point that over the course of this conversation, it seems like you've talked about impressing upon the people beneath you the long-term vision and what can be possible with a company mm -hmm. and then instilling in those employees that vision so they have the motivation to stay and then to work hard to give their back so that they can uh, to give back to the company so they can ultimately want to be rewarded. Yeah. That seems to be a very mm -hmm. effective management style that I've learned throughout this conversation. Yeah. I would say so, but let's talk a little bit about the downside like yeah. employee turnover. We we've had some employee turn turnover lately and um I just wish I could, you know, take them by the shoulders and shake them and bring them back and say, you know, you, you were too impatient. You didn't, mm -hmm. you didn't talk to me. You didn't think about it. You know, you're starting over at a place with a lot fewer opportunities. And I would just encourage, you asked earlier, what advice to people who want to kind of break out in their career. I would say, it's okay to be impatient. Why didn't you talk? Why don't you talk to someone first, like in the executive team or a couple of levels above you? Talk about your five-year, ten-year plan. All those people who went out looking for other opportunities somewhere else, none of them. I don't feel like anyone really, really sat down and explored it. They were just mad that no one came to them and explained or made them feel appreciated or made them um, see where they could be in 10 or 20 years. And it's partly on, it's partly on them. I'm sorry. You know, they, they didn't, they weren't asking the questions because some of them we had amazing plans for, they just need to tweak something. You know, we had just amazing plans for them. Okay. So then why do you think there has been so much employee turnover recently? Do you think it's because yeah. they're not getting the vision or they're just not communicating with, with the people to, above them? 
this is where I have to be careful so I don't come across as like a boomer or something. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. Totally. You can speak your mind. I mean, I'm not going to judge you. In, impatience. You know, I've talked about that. Um, uh, you know, a couple of them, I, I have four children. A couple, mm -hmm. of, a couple of them especially are just into this. The billionaires are all getting together and have us under the thumb, or their thumb, you know, and, and there's conspiracy theories and and just works around, bounces around in their mind, and, and I just think, wow, it's like, is there something more productive you could be thinking about? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not helping you. You're yeah. not going anywhere with that. You're just being critical of people that are successful, and um, there are all kinds of levels of that. Mm -hmm. I think. You know, it's like I'm. I think I'm somewhat successful, and I'm your dad, and you don't hate me. You know, why do you hate Jeff Bezos? You don't even know him. You know, why mm -hmm. are you so angry at Jeff? You know, mm -hmm. and um, do you know do something else more productive? Like figure out you. Maybe it'd be kind of nice if you had as much money as Jeff Bezos. That wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> maybe you should do something about that yeah. instead. But. Um, I, you asked, you know, that's not so much, that's my kids more than the people I work with, you know, but I see it in society a lot. I see it on TikTok and, you know. Definitely seems to be exacerbated by social media Yeah. right mm -hmm. now, both with massive conspiracy theories and then also this hate the, hate the wealthy because they're wealthy instead of maybe let's figure out how the wealthy mm -hmm. become wealthy and you can yeah. do it yourself because you live in America, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, yeah, so, right? which is one reason why we're trying to have this podcast yeah. is talk to people about how they had their success. That's and one thing that I'm other. trying to learn is how can I create a successful life instead of just being angry at people because they're more wealthy and have done things that I haven't, which right. I don't find very productive. Yeah. No. And, and it sounds like you're <clears throat> discussing and describing a problem that's very, I don't want to say specific to certain generations, but it can definitely be attributed more so to the newer generations entering the workforce, which is just they're not finding a way to educate themselves and work hard to build something for themselves. They, yeah. they, they want it to be handed to them instead of looking up towards those people like Jeff Bezos yeah. or even like yourself and saying, what, what have they done to be successful? Right. How, how do you, how do you, change their perspective on that because you talked about it being hard to change someone's long-term perspective and get them to take ownership in a company yeah do you think that stems from this i don't want to say unwillingness to work hard but the 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 difficulty of choosing to work hard that they're having because of this anger towards those above them you know it's really hard for me to completely understand but i notice it in my children that are motivated by money that want money like my youngest I'm not worried about her she'll um, she'll always have a job from the point she could you know mm -hmm. drive to get to the job until like she dies she'll probably want a little extra money and is willing to work for it and then she wants some of mine too and, and you know <laughs> she adds them up and she doesn't want to spend her own yeah. so she knows the value of it she doesn't you know, she doesn't um, have career goals that ignore it. I think a lot of a lot of people go through college and they think, 
oh, as soon as I have a degree, they'll pay me like $100,000 no matter what. And then they have that expectation. Now, you Newsflash, wanna, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might want to check out like the average salary of what you're going into and you know how much mm -hmm. time in school you're going to spend and do a little math and the cost and the benefit. And um, it's, it's tough, though. It's tougher than when I was a... I was a you know young twenty year old something. It's 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 expensive. I don't get it. I think I think our higher education system has ballooned their costs because the federal government was subsidizing it with loans. You know, and the, it's all starting to come due, and, and the system is kind of broke. There's a floor really on the cost that was put in there by our government and, and our our society to encourage people to go to school, which is great. You know, I was a beneficiary of that. I, w I was from lesser means. I, I qualified for Pell Grants, and I got a full-ride scholarship, and I combined the two, and I was probably making more money going to school than I did the first year or two after school just from, like, working the system. So I am not against working the system. I just know, looking back, that a lot of people, you know, have taken advantage of those 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 perks and then the, the higher education institutions are out there you know trying to attract the money costs go up everyone's salaries go up build huge you know um, buildings to to the you know the efforts when you when you kind of you stand back from it all and you think with ai and technology can't we just do it at home on a zoom call for the most part, do you really need all this cost and expense to educate the next generation, make them qualified for a high-paying job? We should be entering a phase of our economy and and history where they should be working. They should be like making more for working less. It's just technology. Like I don't have to grow my own potatoes anymore. And, you know, to eat. Someone else does that for me and I get them for like $3 for a 10-pound bag at Sam's Club. How the heck did that work? That's so freaking cheap, you know? And so I don't have to... I, I am living much better than they did 100 years ago. So we as a society should be putting in the equation together and figuring this out for the next generation. And I, I, I empathize with them. It's not that easy. But um, I don't think it's all the boomers' fault either. You know, it's not. It's not because you got to have a little bit of desire to get out of bed and go do something about it, and not mm -hmm. complain about Jeff Bezos. Which I feel like goes back to your professional journey, <clears throat> because you said that you had those two jobs where you worked really hard, you produced amazing results, and you got fired twice yeah. before achieving the dream job that you actually wanted and the success mm -hmm. that you had hoped for all of those years. So how did you deal with, with those frustrations to ultimately create the life that you wanted? Oh, I thought, I thought about, I lived in the past. I've lived in the past for many years of my life. I will admit that. And it taught me that that's a complete waste of time. It's like not productive at all. So, um, I learned to get over that and just face, new challenges and figure out and take complete responsibility for my part in it. I gave you some stories and aspects of the stories that mm -hmm. don't focus on 
what I messed up on. There were mm-hmm. there's a long list of things I could have done better, and but, I just focus on those and go forward. But you did mention even when you were telling these stories, even if you brushed over them, you did mention there were things you did wrong. So you did yeah. own up to it. That just might not have been the focus, right? Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't read that. I mean, it's it's a stupid reason to get fired, but I could have filed the report a day early every week, and I'd let the guy who's a procrastinator make the decision of when to file that report. That was a stupid decision on my part. So I just I just hand things in early, you know, that the rest of my life. Like, why was anyone waiting for the last minute? So I take complete ownership of that. I, um, you know, I don't get discouraged when it feels like it's, you know, things are stacked against you, I just take it as a challenge, figure, figure it out. I've learned that my personality type works better when I feel like I'm in charge. And I'm not really in charge of things. I have clients on the side and extra things I'm doing, and I own chunks of different businesses that I operate. And I haven't even told you, like, about two or three others. I have way too many irons in the fire, which is ironic because one of the reasons, the, the stated reason, most of the time when you get fired, especially the CFO, they'll give you like the reason that they're firing you. And mm-hmm. the second time it was, I just couldn't juggle multiple projects at the same time. So it almost became like a rallying call, like I am going to prove you guys wrong. I'm going to start. I'm going to be a CFO at this company, a CFO at two other companies at the same time, and own my own bookkeeping business on the side and a leasing company, and you know, part ownership in a company that owns a software company. And it's just, I have all these things going, and I just saw it as a challenge. Not no, not necessarily to say you know, make my weaknesses strong. That wasn't my what I set out to do. It was more of a, um, yeah, I can, I, can, I can figure out my version of success. It doesn't have to be someone else's. It can just be how I define it. Mm-hmm. And I try to, to kind of keep a perspective like that going forward. So we're, we've gone on pretty long, but mm-hmm. you just said something that I thought was really interesting that I want to dive in just a little bit um, before we wrap up. And... So you just said that you're you're wrapped up in, in so many things. You've got so many irons in the fire. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that's like or like why you chose to have all of those different income streams or like you're the CFO of multiple companies, you got your own company. Like how did you build all of that? I, um, it's, it's enough to drive most people crazy. I would think it, it's a per, it's kind of a, um, it's it's kind of a weird personality you have to have to to think that's um, that's success or even what's the, what's the word satisfying you know mm-hmm. it's not it's not going to feel satisfying to most people. I was talking to my sister a few nights ago and I'm like, well, you know you have this skill set in medical billing, you know, and I always see these medical billing companies for sale selling for like a lot of money. I know this person, that person, and I can put this together. We could start our own company. And she said, I don't want anything to do with you, Ron. (laughs) And your craziness. (laughs) Just stay like a mile away from me. I am not doing that. I'm not helping you do that because you're way overloaded. And so um, (laughs) 
it yeah i'm i'm overloaded but i kind of like that it's kind of where i'd like to to be and um i've learned especially the last few years to delegate to um, elevate people below me to um treat other people like partners and not like employees not like i'm elevating them but rather like we're partners in this if uh, if i do this will you do that and um just offload as much as i can that i don't need to be worrying about like and there's a lot that i just trust other people to do and um i just run and like run around like a headless chicken <laughs> most of the day though they'll they'll tell you that yeah so we we've never really talked about why we called the show your press release not on any episode let alone right here with you and so we've talked about your past we've talked about what you're doing now and how you choose to define success for yourself if at the end of your career or your life there was a press release what would it say about you what what would that successful press release look like to you and hopefully, what would you want it to say? Yes. <laughs> yes. What, what, what's your goal? In what, exactly. What would you want it to say if you had a goal for that press release? Not if it was written right now, but what are you aiming for that press release to look like? The press release. So mm -hmm. we didn't, I mean, we talked about some challenges, but just, mm -hmm. and just as we part, I'll tell you a couple of other things I didn't even get into. I am a, I'm a cancer survivor. And they gave me 10 years to live when they diagnosed me eight and a half years ago. And I'm perfectly healthy now, not on any drugs for a couple of years. Whoa. And that's after the broken neck from mountain biking mm -hmm. was kind of an early sign of the, the cancer. It kind of started to eat away at my bone and my neck. So I broke mm -hmm. the neck, didn't, I ignored the doctor, said, this is probably cancer. And I says, can we not? say that and just maybe wait to see if it gets better it got better then it showed up again and um so i've overcome that and overcome being fired twice so i think i've already earned right now the press release of you know something like he overcame a lot he overcame yeah, yeah. i love it that's a wonderful press release and i think it's definitely something to aspire to I think there's a lot to be learned in overcoming mm -hmm. and I think so many of us don't want to have to overcome anything but in reality what are you what are you going to work towards if you're not overcoming something and right. so I, I I definitely have an appreciation for for a press release like that amen to that well with that I think we're going to wrap up the show so thank you so much for being mm -hmm. on today Lon um, I'd love Thanks to have you me. back and talk to you more about cancer and all the things that you're hoping to do next because it sounds like you're up to some really exciting things well, so. maybe we'll come back again <laughs> that would be get great get you guys up to date yeah, okay. thanks for having me yep thank you